Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been two years since I've spoken with Gary Bennett, the subject of the first season of Murder on the Space Coast, and the impetus for doing season two. He'd recently been transferred to a prison in Madison, Florida, which is about a four and a half hour drive from central Florida where I am. In fact, since I last saw Gary in Chipley, Florida, he's been transferred three times. First, Stewart, then Everglades, and now Madison. Madison is a small town in Madison County that sits right on Florida's border with Georgia. It was part of the plantation belt where slaves worked the cotton fields. Before 2012, Madison was a dry county, meaning the sale of alcohol was prohibited. Madison is the kind of place where the truck stop across from my hotel had slot machines, fireworks, boiled peanuts, gator jerky, Mexican blankets, and alligator heads. And let's not forget the video game room, where the only machine that didn't involve a claw dropping down to try and snag some costume jewelry was a rifle-based deer hunting adventure. All that being said, it was actually kind of a quaint little town with lots of sweeping trees and beautiful open spaces. After staying overnight, I got up at five in the morning. Yeah, I was afraid of oversleeping. I went to the hotel's workout facility, had breakfast, and drove the 10 minutes from I-10 to the prison, arriving at 8.15. And even though I've done about 10 prison interviews, well, you just never get used to it. The rows and rows of razor wire, the guard towers, the warnings not to bring in contraband, the panic button they issue when you arrive, and everything else always leaves me with a pit in my stomach. When I arrive at the command center, a guard standing next to me is counting bullets. A sergeant from behind the glass tells me, in no uncertain terms, go back across the street and wait until the guard is done loading his gun. I overhear them say something about transporting prisoners later in the morning. After checking my credentials and my recording equipment, I am led through one electronically bolted gate after another until I am inside the prison. I'm John Torres, and this is Murder on the Space Coast. Are you more frustrated now, two years later, or...? Yes, I am. Yeah. Because I can't understand. I, I, I look at it and I, what is going on? I cannot understand why people can't see what is going on. I keep hearing the state over and over and over again talking about, oh, well, this could have happened and that could have happened. That's not what was told to the jury. If you haven't listened to season one of Murder on the Space Coast, stop and do it now. For those who need a quick refresher, here goes. Gary Stanley Bennett has spent the last 35 years in prison for murdering Helen Nardi. It's a murder that I, along with many others, do not believe he committed. Now, Helen's story was a bit ugly. She used to sell her kids sexually in exchange for rent. 
she allowed a man 10 years her senior, Kermit Parkins, to marry her 15-year-old daughter. And Helen and Kermit would have sex even after her daughter had his child. Like I said, ugly. But you can put all that aside and just look at the facts. On July 13, 1983, 55-year-old Helen Nardi was found in her Palm Bay trailer sprawled out on her bedroom floor. She was lying naked and partially covered with a white sheet. A pair of scissors was crammed in her chest just above her left breast, and the painful grimace frozen on her face relayed the horror of the ice pick lodged so deeply in her upper spine that the medical examiner would need vice grips to remove it. She had been stabbed a total of 26 times with a knife, screwdriver, scissors, and ice pick. Gary Bennett, Helen's neighbor, was questioned a few days later and then arrested several months later for her murder. Gary lived in Helen's neighborhood and he'd been in her trailer before. Also, Gary was somebody known to the police. But here's what you need to keep in mind. Like I said, just look at the facts. There's the fact that Gary passed a lie detector test. There's the fact that Gary passed a rape test kit. There's the fact that two pubic hairs found on Helen's naked body and not belonging to her were not his. There's the fact that the state didn't have enough evidence to make an arrest. So they brought in a fraudulent dog handler, John Preston, to say that his dog detected Gary's scent on the murder weapons. There's the fact that Preston was discredited, labeled a fraud, and left Brevard County in shame. There's the fact that prosecutor Dean Moxley and his sidekick, Chris White, used Preston and jailhouse snitches to put away Wilton Dedge, William Dillon, and Juan Ramos, who were all later exonerated or found not guilty on retrial. Yes, that's the same Chris White, whom a federal court in Florida in July 2018 said purposely withheld evidence in the case against Crosley Green. The court overturned his conviction after 28 years in prison. The state is appealing that one. Moxley and White prosecuted Gary. There is the fact that Gary turned down a plea deal of seven years for second-degree murder and instead faced the possibility of going to the electric chair in an effort to clear his name. There is the fact that Gary's appeal has died at the District Court of Appeals because no opinion was issued by judges who simply upheld his conviction, known as a per curiam affirmed or PCA. That basically means his lawyers have nothing to base further appeals on. Lastly, there is the fact that Moxley, who became a felony judge and had nothing more to do with the case, sent a five-page letter to a special prosecutor urging him not to allow DNA testing in the case more than 20 years after the trial. I think you'll agree, it doesn't seem like Gary Bennett got a fair shake. I wanted to see Gary again. Well, because a lot of people have been asking about his case since season one of Murder on the Space Coast aired. Some people have even gotten involved, including a retired lawyer crafting a special piece of legislation to help Gary. I'll get into that in a second. Interviewing Gary in prison is a bit surreal. Behind him on the wall is a large, colorful mural of Sesame Street, complete with Big Bird, Cookie Monster, Oscar the Grouch, Elmo, and my personal favorites, Ernie and Bert. A prison guard sits nearby. Occasionally, I look up, and she smiles at me. After exchanging pleasantries, I notice something new with Gary. He has put on weight and looks much better than when I interviewed him in 2016. Also, his 1970s-style love boat eyeglasses 
have also been replaced. Oh, I just noticed that you have new glasses. No. No. If you'll notice, those are oh, yeah, sunglass frames. Oh, geez. Because uh, I took my glasses off and set them on my bunk and went to the bath, shower, and when I came back, somebody had sat down on my bunk and they had sat right on the glasses. Oh, no. And so I had to buy these in order to have to be able to see. Oh, geez. Yes. And uh, I asked about uh, new frames, and they told me that they would cost me $18. These cost me a dollar out of the canteen, so. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> well, the pair you, you had on like two years ago, they seemed like from the 1970s. Yes. With the, the giant, uh, the yes. giant, you know, but like bubble. Well, these are the same lenses, actually. <laughs> oh, are they really? Those are the same ones. Wow. They just pop right out. Yeah, yeah. And sure enough, he pops them out and shows them to me. He chuckles a little more about it. I ask him if he's been able to listen to the podcast and whether or not anything has changed. I sense frustration from Gary, who is literally stuck inside this loop of replaying the events of his case over and over and spending every waking minute trying to figure out how to clear his name, how to get out of prison. Have you been able to actually listen to the podcast at all? No, I have not. Wow. I have not been able to listen to the podcast whatsoever. I haven't owned a radio in the last 20 years. Oh, wow. He then explains to me why. I'm not going to be taken advantage of. I'm not a bad, excuse my French, I'm not a badass. Uh, I don't try to be one. I've never acted like one, but I don't run from anybody. Yeah. And um, if somebody steals my radio, my electric shaver, which I don't have, uh, or anything like that, I'm going to go to war to get my stuff back. Yeah. And... uh, I'll probably lose, but uh, the point of the thing is you're just not going to walk on. So I don't, if I don't have this stuff, it can't be stolen. Eventually, our conversation turns to a retired attorney in Brevard County who has taken up Gary's case as his own personal crusade. His name is Francis Clifford, but everyone calls him Frank. And he thinks he may have found a way to help Gary. At the very least, he thinks he has found a way to force the appellate court to write an opinion on their earlier affirmation which would then allow Gary to move his appeal to a higher court. I met up with Frank about six weeks before making the drive to see Gary. You are a retired attorney. I am, I am, but I never practiced uh, criminal law, not, not at the felony level. Gotcha. Just a few uh, small misdemeanor cases many years ago. And so you've gotten involved in the Gary Bennett's case. Can you, can you tell me why? Certainly, certainly. Yeah. I, I was a daily subscriber to, the, to Florida Today. Uh, and I saw that there was going to be a podcast that, that you published. Uh, and uh, I saw it was going to be a four-part podcast. Uh, and so uh, when it was announced that Monday, uh, I started listening to the first podcast. And um, uh, strangely enough, what sticks in my mind is the very first sentence of your first podcast. Oh. Do you remember everything you touched yesterday? Right. And it still sticks in my mind. Yeah. Because I later, I was sure, but I was almost sure, but later I verified that, and it was even testified at the trial by the CSI, you cannot tell when a print was made. Could be a day old, could be a month old, could be three months old. Right. So I listened to, the, I listened to all four podcasts. My nature is under the scales of justice, so that, uh, and equity, that disturbed me very much. It disturbed me very much. It bothered me that it seemed that there was no other avenue. So Frank did what we all do when we're stuck. He went to Google. 
I forget when it was, but one day at the computer, I saw something that caught my eye, and it said it was a site criticizing a new rule of appellate procedure in Florida. So I opened it, and I read about the criticism. The criticism was about a new rule that eventually did go into effect, contrary to the criticism, that beginning January 1st, 2003, an attorney who loses an appeal Frank went on to explain that a new law went into effect in 2003 that allowed attorneys to ask appellate courts for written rulings in their cases. It's not an automatic. The lawyers have to present credible legal arguments for needing these written opinions. Obviously, the law was not in effect in 1984 when Gary was found guilty of murder. So Frank drew something up, a sort of a special bill, because it was so limited that it would only help Gary. He then approached Florida State Senator Debbie Mayfield about it and was immediately encouraged when he learned about her listening habits. Uh, in May, I got a one-hour meeting with, with Debbie. It's, it's interesting because uh, during the conversation, she said on her drives up to, to Tallahassee, she listens to uh, uh, forensic files on the, uh, <laughs> on the radio. That's uh, kind of an interest in, uh, yeah. in, in criminal cases because she sits on the Senate Judiciary Committee. When I explained to her and showed her what I had drafted, we talked about that. I said, my concern is that I don't know how many inmates would qualify for this. You know, are there 22? Are there 222? And she said, Frank, you know what? It really shouldn't, you really shouldn't be concerned about any flooding of the district courts of appeal. She said, because justice is justice. And if the demands are there, you know, justice should be served. And so he revised it after taking out the specifics of Gary's case. A few days after I visited Gary, Frank Clifford was taking his new bill to Tallahassee, where he was meeting with some top legal minds and potential lobbyists for advice. But he's also proven to be a very good friend for Gary. He speaks with him on the phone. He puts money in Gary's account. He sends him things to read, as Gary's a pretty voracious reader, especially graphic novels. And he's also driven to see him in the southernmost part of the state, in the prison in the Everglades, and way up north to Madison, right on the Georgia line, where I went to go see Gary. Frank even talked me into writing an article last year, urging readers to send Gary a card for his birthday. The first time I, I received a stack that day of birthday cards, and the next birthday, uh, I got transferred up here, so uh, the cards never came. Yeah, yeah. So I, I have no idea where they are now. Uh, I received a couple of cards from a few people, but I have received mail from people as far as North Dakota. And I have received, and I try to write every one of them back and say thank you very much. Yeah. I consider anything that they send me a blessing. In talking with Gary about his newfound friendship with Frank Clifford, I get the sense that it means a lot more than just someone working to try and clear his name. It means a respite from his loneliness. I can't say for sure, but I bet it's been a while since Gary Bennett was able to call someone a friend. Well, I basically wanted to ask you, um, since the podcast, you know, Francis Clifford has gotten yeah. involved yes. in your case and, yes. and other people. <laughs> Have you seen any sort of change since the podcast? Are things moving for you a little bit, even if they're not getting done? You know? Well, they are as far as uh, people being getting involved in my case. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, no. 
Right, right. But uh, as far as people getting involved in my case, yes. Francis uh, Clifford has been nice enough. He has gotten on my visiting list. He's gotten on my telephone list. All that. Uh, he sends me books. He sends me money. Yeah. I mean, he's doing everything he can. And I thank God for that because that's a blessing for me. Sure, <laughs> yeah. And more importantly, he's also working on trying to get a bill yes. passed. Yes, he is. Has he been talking to you about that, about uh, what he's doing? Yes, he's supposed to uh, be going up and, and speaking to a legislature uh, this Thursday. And then remember earlier when I mentioned how Gary spends just about all of his time trying to come up with some way that he can try and clear his name? Well, he proposed something to me that I loved. It will never, ever happen, of course, but I thought it was kind of genius. It would make for a great podcast episode. There's one thing that I didn't want to say, and uh, it, I don't know whether you will agree to it or whether your editor will agree to it or whatever, but I still want it known that uh, I would like to do a podcast again, and this time I would like to have an expert polygraph expert from the FBI who can give me a the true serum and ask me all the questions. Did you commit this crime? Do you know who did? And all those questions. And then after I pass the test, which I know I will because I'm not guilty, then I would like Dean Mosley and Phil Archer to take the same test on a podcast and did you know that this man uh, it was innocent? Did you know that John Preston was a phony? Do you know now? And I would like them to, and I'm sure that they would say, oh, we're not obligated. Right. And that would prove everything I say yeah. is true. And I would be more than happy to do that on an open podcast so that there's no way that they could come up with excuses. It might be better to challenge Moxley and Chris White, though I can understand his anger at Phil Archer our present-day state attorney who continues to defend the cases that Moxley and White teamed up on. You might remember, Archer told me for the first season of Murder on the Space Coast that the jury in Gary's case would have come to the same conclusion even without the made-up dog handler nonsense. I'm not sure how he can say that when the prosecutor, Dean Moxley, told the jury that the dog handler testimony was the scientific equivalent of Gary's fingerprints on a murder weapon. They say justice never sleeps. Unfortunately, in my case, for the last 35 years, justice has been in a coma. I believe, and I mean, I truly believe, in my mind, that if this, they came up with some way to bring the dead back to life, and they were able to bring Helen Nardi back to life, and she said, no, he's not the one to kill me, Phil Archer and Dean Mosley would call her either a liar or say she was in denial. <laughs> yeah. I truly believe that. You're probably right. It's sad, but I kind of believe that as well. Frank Clifford's trip to Tallahassee resulted in no clear-cut answers for whether his bill will have legs to stand on. He emailed me and explained that he received some good advice and is also exploring putting together a clemency claim and he's also speaking with DNA experts at Florida's Innocence Project about possibly using more advanced DNA testing methods on the evidence to see if it would yield results. In 2009, DNA testing results were inconclusive as the lab said the samples were too sterile to get a result. I know it's hard for politicians to vouch for and free someone convicted of murder without real scientific proof. Even Frank's bill, while 
legally sound and absolutely correct, would have to be considered a long shot. The state has proved that it will fight any and all efforts to clear Gary and set him free. I have long said that Gary's only real chance at freedom is if a new state attorney comes in and overturns the cases that involved dog handler John Preston. Now, just back to your case for a second, Gary. We, you know, I know that things seem like they're going slow, but we've we've actually you know, been in, like been in contact with a congressman yes. who called us, uh, with a state legislator who's called us, and there's a um, I don't want to say his name, but there's a um, a former judge who might run for the state attorney's office next year or the year after, whenever Phil Archer. Right is up and he's told me that the first thing he's going to do is overturn all those all those dog you know cases <laughs> of course we don't really know what will happen what i was trying to convey to gary was that there is some hope maybe not a lot but some i found his reaction to be a bit odd gary just nodded at me and then went right into something else maybe he's heard one promise or pledge after another over the years and well he'll believe it when he sees it one thing is clear he won't be holding his breath. I felt sad leaving Gary. Interviews with the media are only limited to one hour, and it passed us quickly. Well, hang in there, buddy. It was good seeing you, and um, you look better. I mean, honestly, Thank I mean, you. the the, the, the 18 pounds is, or like whatever you put on is good. Yes. You look too skinny last time. You look like a little old man. Yes, I was about 160-some pounds then. Yeah. I put on weight, man. I'm trying to lose weight, actually. <laughs> I'm wow. actually trying to lose weight, but um, at, at least I, I, f I feel better. Than well, I that's that good day. prison food, right? Oh, yes, yes. Wonderful. <laughs> all right, thanks, pal. I'm going to take off the... Thank uh, you very much. That's all for now. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at 321Murder. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast returns for a fourth season this fall. Keep an eye out for it. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.